Hello and welcome everyone back to another episode of The Publisher Lab. I'm Tyler Bishop and today I'm not trying to frighten my co-host Shelby Kang with um, some kind of shocking or disturbing intro like we did last week. <laughs> I wonder if we'll get anybody writing in about that at all. <laughs> Any complaints or if they thought it was funny. Uh, I figured that it was uh, a good one-off, but if I started every show like that, we may like start to drive people to where they're they're very frustrated with the way that the podcast starts or <laughs> become concerned about your well-being in general. Mm-hmm. I bet you could come up with a lot of creative different storylines each week though. Yeah, you don't want me to you don't want me to go there. I'm not great with examples and I like to come up with a lot of things off the top of my dome. So I feel like things would get weird pretty quick and then also spiral out of control after I run through some basic ideas through a couple <laughs> episodes. All right. Well, the first thing I wanted to start with um, is an article from Search Engine Journal, um, but it's actually a survey from or study from Google, but it's the six need states that influence search behavior. So Google conducted a research project in 2019 and discovered six different consumer need states that influence search behavior. So the research states that these behaviors are what drive intent um, and concludes that growth can be made if you kind of tap into these hidden need states. So the first one is um, surprise me. So this is characterized as search being fun and entertaining um, with a lot of different unique iterations. Help Me is characterized as search being about connecting and practicality. Um, so it's to the point and more likely to mention family and location. Um, Reassure Me is a need state. It's characterized as search being um, simplistic, comfortable, and trustworthy. Um, so it's uncomplicated and more likely to include questions. Um, the fourth one is educate me. So that's searches about competence and control. Um, so it's lots of reviews, ratings, comparisons, things like that. Um, the second to last is impress me. So this is characterized as search being about influence and winning. Um, so it's laser focused using specific phrases. And the last one is thrill me. So that's characterized as search being quick and adventurous, um, just a new way to find new things. Um, it's brief with just a few words and minimal back button use. Mm. So you can probably put on like your marketer hat and then also put on your publisher hat, but is there any crossover here? Yeah, I, I, I think that there is, uh, especially whenever you think about um, the types of content that you're producing. If you're a publisher, uh, Google search is you know, one of the most popular forms of traffic um, for a lot of different types of publishing businesses. Um, it's the target of a lot of different types of businesses that are in publishing. I mean, it, I would say it's probably the primary for most. And um, when you think about your audience, you're really thinking about that search audience and, and, and basically tapping into one of those, those different modes, if you will. And um, that's actually how the algorithm works as well. I mean, there are things that they've they being Google have talked about before as it relates to the types of queries and then intent. And then really like you think about all the different things of like, is it a ranking factor or not a ranking factor, all these different things, um, different queries and different results, uh, are going to weight all of those different factors differently. So, you know, we've talked about it on the show before, but like something news related, like backlinks and authority probably matter a lot more when you're talking about like the latest news about Trump versus, you know, you're just trying to find the re- best recipe for a bunt cake, in which case, you know, 
um, social signals or even click-through rate or uh, dwell time or something like that might lend itself to something that means that this is a better result or something along those lines. So, um, yeah, I, I think in general, um, it's really good to think about this from the standpoint of this is really what you should be catering to rather than trying to figure out like how you cater to all of Google's different signals. Yeah, definitely. Um, I forgot to mention, but Google classifies these six need states into three different categories. So one being emotional needs, social needs, and functional needs. So you can kind of group that in as well. My guess is that most publishers probably could say that the majority of their content falls in one of those three buckets as well, that there's probably not a ton of publishers that aren't massive that are doing a lot of traffic in, you know, more than one or maybe even, yeah, probably more than one of those categories, if I had to guess. Right. Um, the next topic I have today is um, from What's New in Publishing. It's about the rise of Dot Dash. Um, so a little bit of back history about Dot Dash. Um, it actually rose from the remnants of About.com. If you don't remember, it was that um, popular internet brand with a bunch of how-to articles. Um, so in 2015, the parent company decided to rebrand the site. So they chose to rebrand because although About.com was really well-known, um, its articles were so broad that no one really ever thought of it as like its go-to resource yeah. for any one topic. So as the internet started to develop, you know, users started to go to WebMD for health things or Epicurious for recipes, um, and they just stopped going to about.com. So in 2019, About's massive general interest content was broken up into six different standalone vertical brands. So they covered health, home, personal finance, tech, education, and travel. So the publisher also cleaned out its archives, going from about 1.4 million pieces of content to less than 300,000 across um, all of its brands. So while other independent media companies were kind of trying ways to find coverage in social media and video and trending topics, Dot Dash doubled down on text-based articles and, um, and they focused on evergreen content or topics. So all of this combined kind of led to Dot Dash reaching 100 million users each month. Um, they now have 12 different brands um, and the vast majority of their revenue comes from ads. Um, and this is somewhat unusual in the time where a lot of major publishers or big publishers are looking to diversify their revenue streams away from ads. So with all this being said, I know in the past we've kind of touched on whether you should, you know, break up your website into different ones and getting rid of old content, should you delete it and things like that. <laughs> so what are your thoughts on this? Well, my thought, well, my first thought would be is there's not a lot of pages you can take out of the about.com book that I would recommend at this current juncture. So take what they do with a grain of salt because they're in full-blown kind of pivot mode, which is um, there's been there's probably a lot of different things you can go and look look at throughout the about.com history where they've basically um, either done the wrong thing from a SEO standpoint um, or from a business and publishing standpoint done the, the wrong thing or done something with a short-term interest in mind. And so this entire strategy is kind of built out, out off of trying to figure out what do you what do they do next, right? And um, they are big and they've got tons and tons of content and so they have a lot of different pieces to work with. But one of the things I didn't hear about at all in that that piece was uh, profitability, revenue, kind of like 
the financial or business model behind that. And I think that that's a piece that a lot of publishers really don't think through um, when they start approaching these types of ideas or projects, which is maybe I'll break my site up into three sites, or maybe I'll do this, or maybe create a sub subdomain or sub-brand or whatever. And I think what you have to ask yourself is basically – if this goes as well as it possibly could from a business standpoint, what is that investment of my time, energy, resources look like? And what is the, the benefit of that? And then um, also the antithesis of that, which is what if this fails? And then like, what is that going to cost me? And what is the potential impact? And if the potential impact is it ruins your business and the potential upside is that it grows your business by theoretically maybe 20% or 15%, like that's a, not a great risk to reward ratio. And that's what I typically find with a lot of these. Um, there's always exceptions to, to things like that. But generally, I find that, you know, breaking sites uh, up into multiple different sub brands and things like that usually doesn't go well, even if it's just a subdomain or something like that. I feel like nowadays, instead of breaking up into a different site or a subdomain, it's always like um, a certain type of newsletter for a certain vertical or a different series or playlist for, you know, that specific group. Um, so. Yeah, or even just a subfolder within, you know, like you can, you don't have to create a subdomain or create a separate brand just because you maybe want to start creating a new type of content. Just do it. And, um, you know, like the leanest way to do it is to just do it, see if it's attractive. And if you grow an audience on it, it might naturally start to move off of your existing, you know, site or infrastructure onto something else. Who knows? Right. Um, the next topic I want to talk about is from Vice Media. Um, it's about the differences between Gen Z and millennials when it comes to content. What is the difference, Shelby? Um, well, a survey from Vice Media. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, they took a sample of 650 Gen Z Canadians. Weirdly enough, only it's, Canadians. Why? why? Um, I'm actually not sure about that, but they are from the ages of 14 to 22. Um, and that states that 90% of respondents are willing to pay for content they desire and that the average person is already paying for four different content services. So Gen Z's primary motivation for consuming content is entertainment, and they also favor original content. Um, on the flip side of that, um, millennials, so they sampled 150 millennial Canadians from ages 20. I love I love that you preface it every time with Canadians. <laughs> well, I want to try and give you as much information as possible. I, I, I feel like it's maybe like a like it's a dig at Canadians that you're throwing in there, but I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> so um, those are age 23. As if their data is not as accurate or something. Like well, they're just too friendly. They I just mean, answer all the surveys. I, I'm sure we've got a, a lot of people listening in different countries. Well, by, I'm sure of, I've seen the stats, so <laughs> we definitely do. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot of different differences that come with that. But millennials actually look, instead of um, entertainment, they look to content to gain knowledge. So Gen Z prefers diverse global content. Um, they want to explore and engage with a wide variety of different viewpoints. Um, and this is because they were pretty much born into the internet. They were used to having a lot of different access to you know, extensive amounts of information from all over the world. Millennials, on the other hand, actually, they seek local content and their topics tend to be more practical about food and technology and health, whereas Gen Z kind of favors cultural topics like music and humor and memes. 
Um, so I thought this was pretty interesting. It's just kind of the world is slowly starting to understand Gen Z and they're becoming more and more significant in the population. So it's just interesting for me to hear the differences. Yeah, I, I always think that the cultural thing is, is fascinating. And I think it's fun how you can kind of divide uh, people up and just the takeaways that people will have with that. But what I found interesting is you mentioned the thing of the, the likeliness to pay for content. And um, to me, that strikes me as information or data that was collected to validate a premise. And I'll, I mean, who knows why it was Canadians they picked. We kind of joked around about it, but it may just be whoever conducted the research of the study. Just that was the uh, demographic they had ac access to. But either way, the reason I say that is there over the last hundred years, there's not been a time in which the generation that you would survey would say that they're not willing to pay for content. Content has never been free whether you think about newspapers or cable or um, any number of different ways that you could uh, get content, people have been paying for it. Um, you know, we talk about like cord cutting in the United States quite a bit. Um, but, you know, you may be cutting the cord from the standpoint of you may not, may not be paying a cable provider or ISP, but you're going to pay somebody. You're not going to go without the internet and you're not going to go without um, some type of subscription to Netflix or Hulu or Disney Plus or whatever it is. Um, so I think that it's just the shift in where people are spending money on content is changing. Um, and I do think that there is this um, there's this undertone among in publishing to validate the premise that people will pay for written content. Um, and I think it's because there are a lot of executives that are getting jobs based on the idea that they can make this work. Um, there's always edge cases, but I think that the overwhelming majority of people will continue to learn that, um, that written content is just not something people are really going to pay for long term. doesn't matter what generation it is, um, especially now. Uh, but video content is, is definitely an exception. Um, it's more costly to produce. Um, when it's unique, it can very easily be walled, meaning like uh, Star Wars can sell the rights to Disney and or be owned by Disney. And you can basically make all episodes of whatever Star Wars related show um, only available on whatever you would want. And no one else would be able to access that without a paid subscription of some kind. Uh, written content, it's much harder to produce something uh, that has that kind of value. So that's sort of the reason why that occurs. We've talked about it before, but I do think that uh, one of the things we'll continue to find with Gen Z is that they have been accustomed to, because like you said, they've basically inherited the modern internet. So in a lot of ways, millennials were born into the internet, but not, but they sort of pioneered the modern internet. And um, the modern internet is sort of, subscription-based. So many things are, whether it's the technology that you use or the way that you access content. And so it does become sort of a formality in that I'm going to have to put my credit card on file to basically access something of value. So I would think of it in, in terms of that, which is if what you're offering is equivalent in terms of value to other things that people are paying for subscriptions for, absolutely people will pay for it. Definitely. Do you feel... Because you're considered a millennial, right? I don't like that you said it that way, but yeah. <laughs> well, technically, I'm also considered a millennial if you go by. Are you? I thought yeah. you were, I'm, I'm like the very the cutoff. But do you feel like there's a bigger difference between 
millennials and Gen Z or millennials and like say Gen X? Um, I think there's a bigger difference between millennials and probably Gen X than there are between millennials and Gen Z, but the differences are, it's different differences, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I also think about it in terms of, it's not this real tight demographic either necessarily, right? So um, it depends on your, I don't know, like all the basic demographic stuff, you know, but um, you and someone else that are on that kind of cutoff between millennial and Gen Z and somebody that's an older Gen Z are going to have almost, you're going to have almost everything in common um, in terms of like the way that you kind of interact with that, these kind of rigid buckets we put people in. I hate speaking those kind of generalities, but the people that are on the tail end of Gen Z before whatever we get after this Gen Double Z, um, what what I think we'll find is that you'll have more in common with, um, you know, the, the late Gen Z will have more in common with the early millennials or vice versa, however that works, than the tail end of the Gen Zs will have with whatever the next generation is. Um, and the reason is, is because, um, you know, like TikTok being a good example compared to Snapchat, um, you know, I think uh, kids, I'll just say kids, because, you know, 13, 14 year olds, I think really enjoy TikTok. I don't think that they're using Snapchat very much. But I think if you look at a lot of people that grew up with Snapchat when they were 13, 14, 15 years old using Snapchat, um, there's people that are in that bucket that are technically Gen Z. And um, I think that they would like look at the people that are using TikTok now and say like, uh, TikTok's something for for kids. It's not really the thing that I'm into. And yet they're still within the same generation. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. Um, the last topic I have is just a quick one. Um, a few different tips for growing Pinterest following. It's been a while since we've talked about Pinterest, um, but I actually found these tips to be um, better than just like the normal run of the mill ones that I've seen in the past. So the first one is to take advantage of certain occasions. So unlike Facebook, um, users on Pinterest don't log into their accounts to stalk their family members or their exes. Um, Is that what you do? um, I don't even have a Facebook, (laughs) so there's no stalking going on there. Way to throw Um, everybody off the trail. No, now I stalk people on LinkedIn. Um, So Pinterest is an action-driven platform, so pinners log in to find inspiration about a birthday party or a new hairstyle or to try a new recipe, so try and think about those days or those occasions um, that you can capitalize on. So the next tip is to look for popular group boards to post in. So I didn't even know Pinterest had group boards, but um, the best thing about joining these group boards is that you get exposure to new um, potential followers. Um, But the important thing to remember is that you need to post things that will stand out from that board um, and also to look for boards with thousands of followers. Um, And lastly, this one seems like a no-brainer, but make sure your profile has all the necessary connections. So this includes connecting your social media, um, your own website to your profile. You can connect Google Analytics. Um, So those are just a few tips if you are kind of dabbling in Pinterest. I know a lot of publishers will post on Pinterest, but don't really necessarily have a set strategy yeah, those are, I think those are good tips. Uh, the pin, Pinterest is a bit more of a mystery for me just from the standpoint of it's not a platform that uh, I've ever, as a marketer, publisher, uh, any walk of life, spent a lot of time with. Um, so most of the things that I've learned about it have been through people that have. Um, and then uh, had a good conversation with the head of publishing at Pinterest at an event last year as well. And um, they 
they understand that they have a kind of a niche audience among publishers as well. Um, meaning, you know, the, the DIY, the recipe, the, you know, kind of a lot of the different things that you mentioned. If you fall into one of those categories, there are a lot of really interesting ways, like some, some of which you just mentioned, to engage with audiences on Pinterest and really start to grow um, your audience and, and honestly grow something outside of, you know, the, the wall that is the massive wall of traffic that is Google. And so I do think it's, it's something worth looking into. The, the thing to be careful with Pinterest is um, that they very much are trying to bring more and more content into their ecosystem and trying to do less of sending it off of their ecosystem. So that's something that Facebook did a while back to publishers, and you've seen a lot less um, quote-unquote Facebook publishers, meaning people that basically would build Facebook pages and drive visitors to their website from there. Um, the reach kind of got tampered down by Facebook. And I think for Pinterest, what they really want is for publishers to create content directly on their platform, not create content and then share it on their platform. So I do think that that's the area you have to be careful with. Uh, I think most publishers are pretty good at understanding that dynamic. Uh, boy, have they been burned over the years uh, many times. So, um, you know, it's, it's always a hard thing to do in general because you have to get traffic from somewhere. Definitely. Um, that's actually all the topics I have for this week. Uh, just a reminder that we are still taking applications for our Puptelligence event in New York. Um, so if you're in the area or have access to it around April, th- April 3rd. April 3rd, New date. York at Google. And um, by the time you hear this podcast, there's a really good chance it's going to be very close because um, we were actually going through some of the um, applications this morning. And um, it, yeah, it's... I'm always surprised at how quickly things start filling up. Um, so if, you, if you're listening to this and you're like, you know what, I'd like to check this thing out, I would go online today and figure out if you can get signed up because um, we almost always um, book up within the first week or two of um, applications being open. So um, it's a great event. Hopefully we'll have a chance to meet you there. Um, anything else, Shelby? Uh, no, that's all. All right, we hope we can... Meet you again uh, next week, both on the podcast. But if not, hopefully you're checking out some of our video clips and things like that, all available at publisherlab.com. Give us direct feedback on the f- podcast or send us questions. We always love questions. Publisherlabpodcast.com. Oh, uh, what did I say? Publisher Lab? <laughs> Just Publisher Lab? Just Publisher Lab. Oh, it's Publisher Lab Podcast. Um, publisherlabpodcast.com. So hopefully the fact that Shelby had to remind me of that will be the part that sticks out and why you'll remember to go to the correct URL. Not the, <laughs> I publish your lab. I'm not sure what that is, but um, we looked into buying it and it, it is taken, taken. <laughs> as you would imagine. Some publisher out there right now, like that listens to the show probably owns it. Oh, I also looked up the Instagram handle that's taken too. <laughs> Goodness. Well, we want to thank you all for joining us, except for the person that bought publisherlab.com. If you're listening to this, we don't want to thank you. We don't want you to join us anymore. But we're interested in... Buying the domain. Yes. So actually do get in touch. <laughs> so full of caveats for you uh, if you do exist. Um, and that's it. So we want to thank you for joining us on another episode of The Publisher Lab. I'm Tyler Bishop. Alongside me, Shelby Kang. We'll catch you next time.